greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Hello and welcome to Winds of Change. This is your host and Bible teacher Keith McKenzie and this is session two in our series on theology as we're studying the doctrine of man and what the Bible has to say about man. And we will be doing a nine-part series with Pastor Conway Campbell. This is session two of nine. See you on the other side. God bless. And we saw that it comes from uh, the Greek word anthropos. Um, and the word logos, anthropos meaning man and logos meaning word. And so anthropology is a word about man or a discourse about man. We also saw that while anthropology had its roots in theology proper, there now exists two divergent um, viewpoints. One view denies the authority of scripture um, and the other confines itself to scripture. In other words, um, one is conceived by man and the other is derived from God's word. And then we also looked at um, the different views on the origin of man. We saw that there was atheistic evolution. It's atheistic because it att attempts to explain the origin of man apart from God. And then we also saw that there was theistic evolution. You know, this is a theory that attempts to harmonize the evolutionary process with the Bible. Um, and these are people who we talked about who would strike a middle ground. They would try to be in the middle. And then we saw um, some other theories, the day-age theory. You know, this theory rejects the literal six days of creation and would say that when the word days used, it, it doesn't literally mean a 24-hour day, but an indefinite period of time. And then there was also the gap theory, which states that an unspecified amount of time passed between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And during that time, God made a pre-Adamic race of people and ultimately destroyed them in some kind of judgment. And then we looked at biblical creation, which says that if the Bible says that man was created by God, then that's what it is. And if the Bible says that the world was created in six days, then that's also what happened. Um, you know, because everything else in the Bible falls apart if we doubt biblical creation. If we can believe Genesis 1-1, we can believe anything else in the Bible. We doubt Genesis 1-1, the Bible falls apart. And so that's a review, a quick review of what we, we did last week. Let's look into some new material. And this week we're going to look at the material and immaterial part of man. And so the first thing I want us to see is the nature of man as God created him. The nature of man as God created him. This is number one in your notes. And, and, and there's a material part of man and a non-material part of man. So first let's look at the material part of man. That's letter A. The material part of man. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so, again, we see the nature of man as God created him and the material part of man. When we look at Genesis 2-7, for example, we'll spend 
um, sometime in Genesis and go to a couple different passages. But in Genesis 2, 7, we see, Then the Lord God formed man, or Adam. That's the word for man there. And it says, Then the Lord God formed Adam of the dust of Adama. And ground there is the word Adama. And so Adam's very name would remind him of his origin. It's taken um, from the ground there. In fact, if you go and you look up what the human body is made of, um, just Google it even, you'll see a whole list there of, of what the human body is made of. Made of. Um, things that are found in the earth. For example, um, or, or out there, nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, potassium, barium, titanium, um, chromium, manganese, bismuth, tungsten, gold. Now, I'm going to be, you know, how can we harvest gold from people? Some other things, mercury, niobium, silver. You know, these are all things that um, we're made of. But listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 7. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And so there we see the idea here of these vessels made from earth. But he says here, we have this treasure in earthen vessels in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. The treasure, though, is not our bodies. That's not what he's talking about. But the treasure is the knowledge of the glory of God. So what that basically means is that God has deposited this precious knowledge or this precious gift in every clay Christian. And so a vessel comes from, its worth comes from what it holds and not what it is. Now, saying all that, you know, there have been many views concerning the purpose of the body. Um, you know, when we look at verses like that, we see that biblically it, it talks about that. But there have been some other views out there. For example, number one, there is Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-I-M. Um, this is a, a Greek philosophy. Um, or it started there, and you know they made a big difference between the body and the um, and the soul. So they would say, um, and I'm going back to the Greek roots of this, by the way. They would say that the soul is the non, which is the non-material part of man, is good, but the body, the material part of man, is is what is evil. And and um, and this would is what is known again as Gnosticism. And so they believed that trapped within people's bodies were some sparks of divinity or some seeds of light, if you will. And so they claimed that a person would attain salvation by learning secret knowledge, um, you know, of their spiritual essence. They would tap into to that thing inside, and that's how they would they would gain salvation. They say that there would be some divine spark of light, and then people would then have the opportunity to escape from the prison of their bodies at death. So our bodies in Gnosticism is a prison and is holding that good immaterial part of us and at death 
he gets released. And then the soul then, they would say, is reunited with the supreme God. Now, one thing I found interesting about the Gnostics is that they have a high regard for snakes. And um, so when we look in Genesis and um, we look at the serpent and we see what the serpent did, you know, they wouldn't see that as the serpent seducing and Satan in in the serpent seducing Adam and Eve to sin. They would see him as a liberator, you know, not a tempter, but as a liberator, you know, that, that is giving knowledge that they need to find that divine spark within them. So that's Gnosticism. Anything anybody want to add to that? Gnostic experts? G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. There's another view that sees the body as the only part of man that's important. That view is called hedonism. That's another one. Um, And hedonism perhaps is the opposite of Gnosticism. What do they believe? They believe that man should seek to please the body. It's all about the body. And so man should do what he enjoys doing. What were you going to say? Eat, drink, and be merry. This is exactly for tomorrow you die, right? Um, and, and so they would say that pleasure is the only intrinsic good. And so you could see how far that could go in terms of hedonism, pulling away from um, biblical um, what our bodies are for. So there's Gnosticism, there's hedonism, and there's also what is called monism, M-O-N-I-S-M. And this view says that the body and soul are equally important to God, and that the body is the partner to the soul, that the body and the soul are unified and can only be separated at death, only to be reunited when? At the rapture. And so... You know, when we look at the Bible, the Bible never refers to the body alone as being evil. The Bible instead focuses on the value of the human body to be used in glorifying God. It talks about us being a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own? And so this view would also dismiss the the view of the Gnostics because the Bible speaks about the value of the soul as distinct from the body. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Mark 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so there, there's, there's no such thing as hedonism in the Bible. It doesn't support that or, or Gnosticism. Thoughts or comments on those views. So that's letter A, the, the, the material part of man. Then there's B, the non-material part of man. And we know there's been a lot of debate on this very issue. Um, We know that there's a body because we could see it. We could see our bodies. But what about the rest of man? What else is there? You know, um, is it the soul only or is it the soul and spirit? You know, a few minutes ago I was quoting some verses about 
you know, don't fear those who can destroy the body and are unable to destroy the body and soul. And I was talking about the soul only and didn't mention much about the spirit. Does that mean that one is non-existent? Well, again, there are a couple of views on this as well. And the first one you'll see on the number one there is the dichotomous view. Um, how's everybody spelling tonight? D-I-C-H-O-T-O-M-O-U-S. Dichotomous. And this is a word that comes from dichotomy. And it comes from the Greek word dika, D-I-C-H-A, and from the, the Greek word temno. Dyko mean, dika means two, and temno means to cut. All right? So it, it's put together in that way. So this view would say that man is in two parts consisting of body and soul. All right? So that's a dichotomous view. And there's a couple scriptures that seem to speak of this. And so people who are, are believe in the dichotomous view would, would use these scriptures. The one I just read, Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, that verse doesn't mention the spirit at all. And then there are scriptures that seem to, other scriptures that seem to talk about that. For example, Genesis 2, verse 7. Um, uh, this is from the King James Version. And the Lord God formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You probably noticed when I read it from the New American Standard, um, it says that man became a living being. You know, other um, translations say similar things. Another Verse, Matthew 10, 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, how would this view reconcile then with the use of the word spirit in the Bible? You know, there's that debate that happens, you know, because sometimes the word spirit is used to speak of that immaterial part of man. And so, in a sense... Sometimes there's a concession on this issue. Even for people who are in the camp of the dichotomous view, they make a concession because in the Bible we clearly see the word spirit used in that regard. And so the concession that they would make then is they would say, all right, we see that the word spirit is used to refer to that immaterial part of man, but we believe that the soul and the spirit are the same substance but they have different functions. So that's the concession that they would make. You see that? You know, same substance, one thing doing two different things. That's, that's how that would, um, that would go. Anybody hear anything different on that in terms of how a dichotomous person would address that issue of the spirit? Okay, so they would see it as, uh, from, from what I've seen and studied, they, they would see one, one thing that does two things. But then there's the trichotomous view, T-R-I-C-H-O-T-O-M-O-U-S, the trichotomous view. And, and trichotomous comes from the word trichotomy, and it comes from, again, two Greek words, trika and temno. Trika means three, and temno, again, means to cut. And so it relates to, to, to man um, here, and we're viewed as, as a three-part being then, consisting of the body, soul, and spirit. Now, how is this supported? Again, we see this in Scripture also. First Thessalonians 5, 23. 
And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, blameless unto the coming of the Lord. I pray your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, blameless until the coming of the Lord. You know, what is Paul talking about here? You know, he's talking about our sanctification. And in relation to that, he's saying that the parts that are being sanctified is our, is our, our, our body, soul, and spirit. In addition to this, a verse that you're probably looking at, Marilyn, is Hebrews 4.12, right? Is that where you're at? Right, yeah. Right, but Hebrews 4.12, you know, it's one that we, we see a lot and, and we talk about a lot um, and kind of nails it down for me when you talk about the trichotomous view because um, that's the camp I fall in. It says, um, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's a lot in that verse, you know, to, to come when, when you really look at it. There's a lot there. Um, actually, turn there. Let's, let's look at it. It's a fascinating verse. Hebrews chapter 4. All right, you know many many people will use this verse um, to to show that God will judge unbelievers with his piercing sword. That's how some people will use this verse. But in the context here, it's referring to God judging believers to determine rewards. For example, we see about this whole reward thing in First Corinthians three thirteen, where he says, "Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it." because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And in this context, the verse deals with what will happen at the judgment seat of Christ, where he's going to examine our innermost attitudes and motives. And the scalpel that he's going to use to examine these innermost thoughts and motives is his word. Now, I believe he's going to do that with believers, and I believe he's going to do that with unbelievers. You know, when it says, and he opened a book, and then other books were open. I think the book that he, is the Bible. Then he's going to open other books, and he's going to use that against them. But he's going to use this for us at the judgment seat of Christ, his word. And it's going to be like a boning knife, you know, going in there that cooks use to cut up meat and to get that meat right off of the bone there. And so even when we have a hard time distinguishing between the soul and the spirit, God's word could do it because even though it's so close, um, he, it can separate it. And it says here in the verse that God's word is so sharp, not only can it divide the, the line between the soul and the spirit, but it's even able to expose our thoughts and our attitudes, our intentions, the intentions, you know, you think about that for a little bit. The intentions of our heart, it's even able to do that. Hebrews 4.13, verse 13 there, it says, Neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in the sight, 
but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so we picture that for a moment. It's like, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever been um, fishing and you got to clean a fish. You know, it's like splitting the thing down the middle and gutting it and, and everything is out there on the kitchen counter. Everything's open in plain view or like biology class when you'd pull everything out and label everything and pin it down in the, in the rubber thing they had there, the tray. Now, what is the author saying here in Hebrews? He's saying that God's word can reach to the innermost recesses of our being. And so we shouldn't think that we could bluff our way through anything. Um, you know, we can't even keep our thoughts to ourselves because God's word is there. So with all that being said, verse 12 there implies that there's a division between the soul and the spirit and that they're divisible and that they're not identical. Thoughts or comments? George. Well, last week we had talked about the whole image thing being the intellect, emotion, and will, um, uh, you know, and that being the likeness that we're made in. You know, when you when you look about us having intellect, God having intellect, emotion, will, and so forth. Um, but I, I see your logic nonetheless. Marilyn? Sure. Sure. Right. Right. Right, and then our, and then our body, obviously, right, right. Because how do you know you're saved? The spirit communicates with your spirit. And that's how you know other people are saved. Yeah, yeah, right, right. George. Another way to look at it is uh, uh, God told them in the day that they needed to be sure to die. Well, they were still conscious. Yep. And then if we look into visions. Uh-huh. Paul mentions why you were dead in trespasses and sins. Yeah. But now made alive. Yeah. So, the uh, part that was dead is now made alive. Right. Right. Exactly. Other thoughts? Perfect. Let's move on. See number two there, the fall of man. Now, we looked last week at, at some different views on the origin of man, but but despite all those that don't believe in biblical creation, all the people that don't believe in biblical creation, we believe in it, or I believe in it. And as such, I believe in the fall of man. And so we would call the fall of man, letter A there, a space-time event. A space-time event. You know, to even talk about the fall, we have to believe it's real. So what space-time event means is that the fall mentioned in Scripture, is a historical event. It is a real event involving real people. Romans 5, 12 to 21 describes the whole thing. You know, remember that passage, that through one man, sin entered the world and so on. Um, that whole passage, we looked at that last week. And so without believing in the historicity of this event, Paul's whole argument in Romans 5 would fall apart. 
if if the if this event didn't happen. In other words, if Adam wasn't a real person, then who would have brought sin into the world? And then there would be no point for Jesus to come to redeem humanity. But even Jesus Christ himself viewed this event as a historical event. In Matthew 19, um, 3 to 5, he says, The Pharisees also came to him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. And so an argument that some will use to say that it's not real is that, you know, they would say Adam and Eve are not real people, that God only created mankind at the creation, mankind in general, um, they would say. Um, You know, we know Adam, yes, is the start of mankind, but he is a real person. In in Luke chapter 3, for example, um, as Luke's running through genealogy, he says this, and, and these, you know, genealogies show how important individuals are to God. You know, they are in, uh, important, but it's helpful for times like this. Um, I'll pick up in, in verse 38 where it says, The son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which is the son of God. <laughs> you know, so, you know, he, he, he traces that. And all in that chapter before that is just names, the son of this, the son of that, the son of that. And he and he keeps um, he keeps going through that, um, you know. Um, God does that for a reason. Even when we go back to Genesis um, chapter um, five, there with with Enoch, and it's talking about, um, and even before that, we're talking about there were two Enochs, and they, God made a differentiation between the one that's a seventh generation from Adam to make us see that it wasn't this other one that He was talking about. So people are important to God, and 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 we see here even contained within Scripture. Um, some genealogy that shows that, you know what? This was a real person. This wasn't just mankind. It started with with a person. So these are real people coming from a real man. And then in the same way, Eve was also a real person. Second Corinthians 11.3, But I fear, lest by any means, as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so that's referring back to a specific time. And so if the fall wasn't an actual event then, then there might be exceptions to our sinfulness. You know, now keep in mind that whole Romans 5 argument that through one man sin entered the world and, 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 and sin to all of us and death to all of us. You know, if that's true, um, and, you know, which we believe it is, but if there wasn't an actual space-time event, then there might be exceptions. We could look at that verse and say, that's not me. I didn't eat the fruit. You know, there's no sin that's being passed down. And so certain scriptures would be alive for everyone. It wouldn't apply to all of us. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not even one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They have gone, they're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all of sin come short of the glory of God. In that case, Some might sin, it would say, or some have sin. And so you could see um, how certain scriptures would fall away. And so, um, you know, they they would see that there could be some exceptions. So I believe it's an actual space-time event. 
and then let her be there, um, that there would be a test. So we see there's a space-time event that there would be a test. And if you remember last week from my doctrinal statement that I had read to you, one of the points was that man was created in a state of untested holiness with the ability to discern and to choose between good and evil. So God gave them the discernment in, in chapter 2, verse 16 of Genesis, when he says, from any tree in the garden you may eat, but from this one you cannot eat, or you will surely die. You know, they were, they were told then that they were free to eat from any tree of the garden, except one. Another thing that I said in my doctrinal statement is that I believe that upon the occasion of the moral test, Adam failed, thus bringing sin into the human race. But now that the, the test came about, mankind failed. And the test was a simple one. You know, it would determine whether or not they would believe God and obey him or, you know, or, or disobey him. And so it, it, it all comes down to knowledge or came down to knowledge. You know, God gave them the prohibition. And by doing that, as we had talked about too, he was saying that he alone knows what is good for man. He's saying, don't do this, do this, stay in this, in this boundary. And so he gave knowledge to Adam and Eve. You know, he said to them what the consequences were if they disobeyed him. So again, not necessarily, not about the fruit, but about the disobedience. And so they knew that there were going to be consequences, right? From the beginning, they couldn't blame God and say, we didn't know. You didn't tell us we couldn't eat from that tree. But so it all comes down to knowledge. They had the knowledge from God, but they decided to go about it a different way. They wanted to attain the knowledge their own way. They attained it in the wrong manner. They got it experientially. So if we think about it, let's try to think about an uh, illustration, and it comes back to the kids touching the hot stove, right? You tell them, you know, you try to educate them ahead of time. Don't touch it. You know, even before they even go near it, never touch a hot stove because it's an ouchie, we'll say, or whatever. And what do they do? They disobey, and they go touch it. And they figure out experientially because of the pain how much it hurts. And they knew that we were telling the truth as parents. And so they don't do it again. And so we could see the same thing happening with Adam and Eve. They knew that they disobeyed God. And they knew that God was right all along because they felt the changes. They saw that they were naked. The fellowship changed. They were hiding from God in the garden as he was looking for them. And so I could imagine this. This isn't in the scriptures, but I could imagine them, you know, taking their kids up to the edge of the Garden of Eden and they could see the cherubim there guarding this thing, you know, um, so they couldn't go there. And they're telling their kids, this is where we used to live. You know, and they could see on the outskirts and they could see the beautiful place. This is where we used to live. It was a beautiful place. But we sinned, we disobeyed God and God kicked us out. And the cherubim are there to stop us from going in because if we eat from the tree of life, we're going to be sealed in our sin forever. And you could imagine them telling their kids that God killed a lamb. And he, and he told us that that blood represents one who will come later who's going to die for us. And someday we're going to be back in a place like this. Paradise lost will be paradise found someday. You know, not in the Bible, but you could imagine it happening because I don't believe the garden was destroyed till the flood so that the kids knew what their parents did and their parents taught them about that. Someday I'll have to ask Adam what that was all like. It'll be interesting. But notice also, so there was a test. Then notice C, there was a temptation. There was a temptation. 
after the test then, there was the temptation. And we saw that the avenue of the temptation came through the serpent, who was the devil. And it says in Genesis 3, 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Um, we see and know that the serpent is the devil because of verses like Revelation 12, 9, that talks about the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And so starting then when he was thrown down because of what we saw in, in, in Ezekiel and Isaiah, he had a MO or a modus operandi that he used then and he's using even now. And that's his strategy, if you will. So notice under, under letter C there, um, he lies about himself. Satan lies about himself. That's one of his, his MO. Um, again, he's called the father of lies. Jesus talked about it in John eight forty four. You're of your father, the devil. You know, whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar, and he is the father of lies. But how did he lie about himself in Genesis? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Think about where he, he came in. How did he lie about himself to the first couple? <clears throat> Without even talking. Yeah, he came as a serpent. He didn't, he didn't come as himself. Um, and so... He's, he's showing himself as something other than who he is. And he does the same thing now. The second thing he does under C there is he lies about God. He lies about himself and he lies about God. Look in Genesis 3, 1 again. He says, has God said? Now, this is one of three times in the Bible where we hear Satan's voice. Um, you know, this time where he lies about God, he slanders God before man. This is what he's doing. Um, the second time we see hear his voice is he's slandering man before God. In the case of Job, when he presents himself before God, and he and he slanders Job before God. And then the third time we actually hear his voice is he slanders the God man when he tempts Jesus and he he slanders him. And so he he lies about God in this situation, and, and it's his M.O. He does the same thing today. And then the third thing there on the letter C is Satan lies about the consequences. He lies about the consequences. Genesis chapter 3 again, um, verse 7 and 8. We see here, um, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So God was right. Their relationship did change, but not in the way that they thought. The fellowship changed. They died spiritually that day. He was right in Genesis 2.16. First Timothy 2.14 tells us it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Um, some other Old Testament scriptures characterize the shame and the guilt that they must have felt. Ezra 9.6 talks about, he says, And I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. 
Jeremiah 6.15 says, Were they ashamed because of the, found, of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. And so they must have felt similar to that. And then notice letter D there, the results of sin. The results of sin. You know, because the fall was sin, there were consequences. And in fact, um, in um, in in chapter three, there um, it talks about there that there were five um, consequences that happened there. The first one under letter D is the judgment on Satan. The judgment on Satan. Genesis three fifteen says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And um, this is the, the first um, biblical passage here that talks about the provision of salvation in the Bible. It's called a proto-evangelium, or the first gospel. But enmity here in this verse means hostility or hatred. And so God's intention here is, is the person behind the snake, Satan, um, that's, his, that's who he's focusing his target here. And so this is a promise here of, of the, the victory of the ultimate seed of the woman, the seed of the woman being the Messiah. He's going to have victory over Satan. Galatians three sixteen to 19 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for the, this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. There's a lot of scripture that supports that, that of what Christ would do. So there's the judgment on Satan. Secondly, there's a judgment on the woman also. We see um, in verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children, your, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so he says, woman would experience pain in bearing children here. Now, Eve would have had children before the fall, and I believe that there wouldn't be any pain. But now Eve and her daughters would experience pain. Now, if you look at the word multiply, or depends on your translation, increase your pain, it might sound as if, there was going to be pain, but it was going to be increased now after the fall. Now, remember, um, if we look more at the meanings, you know, increase or multiply there means to bring on or to, to bring in abundance. That's what he means. And so he's saying, you know, I will bring on your pain in childbirth or I'll bring in abundance your pain in childbirth. That's what he's talking about here. 
And he says, yet your desire will be for your husband. You know, her desire would, would be, you know, be for her husband, he says here. And, and desire there means longing. And so she will have a longing for something. Um, and, and we can see this in three ways. The woman's desire would be subject to her husband's desire. Um, she can't do what she wishes because her husband rules over her. And whatever she wishes is subject then to his will. It also means here that the woman will have a psychological dependence on her husband. You know, there'll just be an attraction that will be part of her nature is what the scriptures seem to be talking about here. And then the woman will desire to dominate the relationship with her husband. It's going to be this 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 battle going back and forth. And then third, the judgment on man. The judgment on man. And in verse 17, he says in Genesis, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your mate or your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from, curses the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow from you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What do we see here is the curse to man. A big piece is that he is now going to have to work hard to obtain a living from the ground. He says in verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to earth because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Since the human body was formed with dust, then on death it will be returned to dust there. And then fourthly, there's a judgment on creation. We see that also within verses 17 to 18, you know, Adam had already had the privilege of um, taking care of the garden, but that didn't require strenuous work. He had to work, but it didn't require strenuous work. Now he would have to work hard to get results. And so Adam and Eve, they sinned by eating, and then now they would have to suffer in order to eat. And also he would return to dust when he died. And then fifthly there, there's a judgment on the entire human race. And to see this, um, we have to look at Romans 5.12. Look one last place. We've read this verse a couple times, but we'll look at it on paper. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Adam's sin here back in Genesis resulted in his descendants inheriting this sinful human nature. And so death then is due to the sinning of each individual, but ultimately to the sin of Adam because it was Adam's sin that corrupted the human nature and made our sinning a sure thing. And that's what makes you know, sermons like Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, um, so hard for a lot of people to digest or even want to hear because he believes in the doctrine of original sin. And so 
it means that human beings are born guilty and deserving of wrath. A lot of people don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to think that they're guilty. People will shun that. This includes even children. People don't want to hear that, that children are born guilty even. But anyway, you know, next time we'll look at sin. And we'll look at the, the strict definition of sin as it relates to man and some different types of words that are used for um, uh, wrongdoing and, and, and narrow down this whole issue of sin as it, as it relates to, to man. Are there any comments, thoughts, or, or questions on, on all that? Hold on one second. Hang on one second, George. Sorry. we're going to look at this whole babble thing and um you know i would think sometimes that kind of stuff just causes their own destruction destruction at some point you know but um you know i i don't know you know he talks about in the large last days how knowledge increases and and so forth so i think it's a progression of of just our nature too in terms of the stuff that we invent and create, Jim? I think some of these fine tools that we have, they're nice when they're new, but they don't last very long. And then you have to have double work fixing that and then going to the problem. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes it makes more work. Okay, yeah. Well, considering all this machinery, or no matter what our vocation might be, what we're really trading is jobs. We still have to work hard yeah. to get what we need. Sure. You know, I would say I sit a lot, but I work very hard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I would say that, you know, but, um, but and, and a lot of people do too. But I'd agree with that. All right, we'll close. Help us, Father, as we go out this week, that we would um, be a light to somebody we come in contact with, that uh, we would understand mankind, and, and that would give us even more empathy and sympathy and love for the lost so that we would try to win them for you, for the kingdom. But help us, Lord, to be students of the Bible, to dig in, to understand how we're made and, and perhaps we'll appreciate our salvation even more. But we be with us now and give us safety in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Conway, for that. And, uh, I hope you're enjoying uh, these uh, theology series as we continue to upload this. Uh, you can find all these things if you stay uh, in contact with us through our various uh, social media websites. Uh, we have uh, Facebook if you want to interact uh, in there and 
talk and discussion groups, we have those. Uh, you can find all of those at our website at www.amos37.com. That looks like A-M-O-S, the numbers, 37.com. And uh, we recommend that you stay uh, in touch with... Uh, uh, our iTunes account. So as these become available, we're in the middle of a uh, rapture series. Um, we're coming back from some summer vacation, and uh, we'll be wrapping up that series. We have an, uh, another ongoing series with uh, the uh, doctrine and study of bibliology, and I am in the uh, process of studying for... Uh, uh, what I'm pretty excited and stoked about is uh, to do a study on Israelology. That is a study of the doctrine of Israel, which covers five-sixths of our Bible. And that'll be coming, uh, God willing, uh, sometime in the fall, probably uh, of 011. But anyway... Um, stay in touch, and uh, if you have questions... Uh, you can interact with us through our Facebook account, and all of those are found over on our website. And until next time, may God richly bless you as you continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Him. We love you. Bye.